Exodus chapter 10. We're going to look tonight at the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. And it begins in chapter 10, verse 21, working its way down to verse 29, uh, the end of the chapter. We'll get into it more probably next time, but there's uh, an interesting, uh, you know, this is one of those unfortunate chapter divisions, right? You know, where chapter 11 begins. We'll talk about it more next time. But chapter, this end of chapter 10 and the, the ninth plague kind of flows into chapter 11 and the announcement of the 10th plague, which will be our, our, our subject next time. But nonetheless, as we look tonight at chapter uh, 10, verse 21 to 29, this ninth plague is the plague of darkness. We're going to see the scene described and unfold in verses 21 to 23, and then the scheme, if you will, verses 24 to 29, which is uh, Pharaoh's yet another attempt to, to try and... Uh, you know, can give a concession to the Israelites and yet renege upon it. And so, uh, again, simple thought flow to our text tonight. But let's, if you got your Bible, let's read the passage and then we'll come back and look at it. All right, verse 21, chapter 10, Exodus 10, verse 21 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over uh, the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. We'll come back to that. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven. And there was a uh, thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And Pharaoh called unto Moses and said, Go you, serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. And Moses said, You must give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. Our cattle also shall go with us. There shall not one hoof be left behind. For therefore must we take to serve the Lord our God, and we know not with what we must serve the Lord until we come thither. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said unto him, Get you from me. Take heed to yourself. See my face no more. For in that day you see my face, you will die. And Moses said, You have spoken well. I will see your face again no more. All right. Now, uh, though he's, he seems to be here banished from the presence of Pharaoh, we'll see as we continue next time in chapter 11, he's actually still in the presence of Pharaoh when he gives the, the announcement of the 10th and final plague, the climactic plague. And then, of course, the, the 10th plague begins in chapter 12. So we'll get to that in due time. But as we look at this ninth plague, this is, uh, again, appropriately so, as you've been plotting this with us, uh, you know, in our, in our past weeks and months. The ten plagues are, of course, designed, structured in a way to climax, to become worse and worse. And this is, of course, also seen in this ninth plague, which is the most climactic so far. Now, because it is the third uh, in this uh, final triad, recall, uh, out of the ten plagues, the first nine are broken down into three groups of three, or three triads, and those three groups of three show there's a lot of interrelation in how they're structured and organized, if you recall that. Well, the third in the triad of each, you know, each triad will begin without warning, right? The idea is that there was a warning for the first plague and the second plague, but because both of which, you know, were ignored, the warnings were ignored, the uh, word of Pharaoh was reneged, well now, you know, here he is, uh, the third in the triad comes without warning. So again, we see this is the same pattern is being followed. However, to appreciate fully this plague account, 
uh, I think it's, it's helpful for us to understand how darkness was viewed in antiquity, how it, was, it threatened ancient people. And not just in antiquity, in modernity as well, but much more back then than now. And I want to consider that in three basic ways uh, as we just contemplate why this ninth plague is so climactic. Why is this so significant? Why, you know, because when I was uh, a kid and I was trying to read through the plagues and the first time I was introduced to that idea that this was, a, you know, a climactic structure, then I, I had a hard time visualizing why this was uh, worse than the last one, right? It seems like the last couple of plagues were worse than this one. The darkness, how bad is that really? You know, and yet the, the more I, I come to understand it, uh, I, I, I see the climactic factors involved. But I want to consider just the physical aspects of darkness and why this would have been a, a tremendous, you know, difficulty for this, uh, you know, they, the Egyptians here. Also, the supernatural aspect of this darkness, that there's something about it that is unique. It's described as a darkness that can be felt, and there's some debates on what that means, but uh, we'll talk about it. And then, of course, the spiritual aspects of the darkness, particularly how it is attacking uh, one of the preeminent gods in Egypt, the god Ra. And so there's a lot of, again, significance in that regard. So first, let's just consider the physical aspects of darkness. As we contemplate why this plague is saved as the ninth plague, the tenth, of course, is the most climactic, and we'll get to that uh, here in the next couple of weeks. But when we consider this ninth plague and, and how to this point is one of the, it's a climactic plague, then one of the things we need to realize is the physical aspects of darkness and why three days of darkness was going to be so terrifying and so difficult. Now again, we in modernity travel easily at night with the aid of various forms of electric lighting, right? We have all sorts of artificial lighting. And yet this is, you know, here we are, and it's, it's after sundown, right? It's dark, but we're sitting in a well-lit room and we have, you know, no worries about it. Well, this, again, was, was not available in antiquity. So the ancients were virtually immobilized by the darkness of nighttime. We have a number of passages that allude to this. I don't have the time to go to all these passages if we're going to you know, get through the text this evening. But I do encourage you, you know, if you're a note taker, jot them down, check them out. But Psalm 121, the psalmist describes, it's actually one of the uh, songs of ascent where they're, they're traveling as a pilgrim to Jerusalem. And they talk about, you know, in travel, that how, how terrifying the nighttime was and asking for God for help and protection during the night. Isaiah 8, Isaiah 50, a couple other passages that have similar ideas embedded in them. But the point is, uh, if you weren't in a safe place, stationary, protected uh, at, at nighttime, then you were vulnerable to uh, all sorts of different attacks or, uh, you know, vulnerabilities. So again, we can be active at night because our homes and places of work can be cheaply illumined. The ancients closed up their cities at night. Joshua 2, for instance, it's Jericho, right? But when nighttime comes, what do they do? Close the gate to the city, right? They, they fortify their, their homes and their, their city walls. We see this in Acts chapter 9, same thing. This is actually when uh, Paul was trying to escape the city of Damascus, remember this? And they, uh, they let him down uh, over the wall, because it was nighttime and they closed the gates. Uh, Nehemiah 13, same thing. They're rebuilding. They just finished building the walls of Jerusalem. But what's the problem? Well, there's all these people like Sanballat that's out there. They hate the Jews and they're going to try and, remember, they've already tried to allure out Nehemiah and assassinate Nehemiah and they've made all these threats against the Jews. It's nighttime. They're vulnerable to attack. So what do they do? 
close the city walls, right? We could go on with several illustrations. Again, we in modernity feel relatively safe during the night, even when we're away from home. With various means of communication, we can call for help. This is readily available to us. Yet they were at the mercy of common thieves and bandits. Again, Psalm 91 uh, is a prayer for that. The Song of Songs describes that. This is when Shulamite was being uh, brought down to Jerusalem for the wedding. It says that there was all these armed guards that were bringing her down. Why? It says, because of the fears of the night. It says in Song of Solomon uh, 3 verse 5. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good point. So that's another whole element of this. I think I only have a comment or two on it, but the idea of the psychological and physical effects of darkness. That's good. That's good. And there's been all sorts of evidence of, you know, prisoners that have been, you know, placed in a dark dungeon with no lighting whatsoever, and they've been there for years. And then they come out, and they were fed, and they had food and water, you know, maybe not a lot. But they come out, right, and they, they have their disease. They have, you know, their teeth are falling out. Their, their, their skin is translucent, right? Their hair is falling out, right, because they had no light whatsoever. Yeah. They were frozen in place. Exactly. Because they, they couldn't see anything. Which goes to show, and, and you know, we'll, 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 we'll see in the text, we just read it. There was light in Israel's dwellings. But what is implied by this, and, you know, we, we're kind of reading between the lines here, but it implies that even the artificial forms of light that the Egyptians normally would have employed, such as torches or candles, that they were ineffective. That there was something about the darkness that even their artificial forms of light, they, they couldn't get to work. Yeah, something. But Israel, on the other hand, they had light, you know? And so, I mean, and, and there's an obvious, very stark, right, contrast between the Egyptians and the Israelis in this. Because there's dark, complete darkness and they're immobile. They can't go anywhere, do anything. They're frozen in fear. And then the Israelite homes, warmth, light, etc. Yeah. God said, no more will I affect the Israelites. So that meant that the ninth plague, they would not have the darkness. But if we're in the land of Goshen, which is like, it sounds like it's on the other side of the Nile. I can't quite picture where it is. Yeah, it's in the Nile Delta. May have seen that light and been moved towards it or something. No, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, it says that they they weren't, how did it say it? They, they did not rise from their place, verse 23. So it makes you wonder, did they even see that light? You know? Yeah, I don't even think they would have seen it. At least that's how I visualize it. Yeah, is that, and it would have been distance enough, you know, that they themselves would have been sitting for three days in absolute isolation, absolute darkness, and, you know, incapable of seeing even the, you know, the distance, light at a distance. Was there a hand over here? And then we'll go back, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that, I mean, I mean, 
be thinking about it, how that would actually work, you know, well, the engineering is thinking about this, but as far as uh, maybe God struck them all with a severe, I mean, with a blindness to where it wasn't quite blindness, but they just, everything was dark to them. And that's, and that's a possibility, right? I mean, we, we do see God do that elsewhere, you know, that there is, you know, he can strike with blindness, right? You think of the Assyrian army. And, but in their mind, the way they experienced it, it was darkness instead of blindness, but they, mm-hmm. some, they knew it was, it was darkness, but almost like a blindness that they, all the Egyptians were struck blind to a certain extent. Right. Where they perceived it as complete darkness. Oh, that's an interesting thought. And, you know, I, and I think, and I, I mean, just my first reaction to that is, you know, that that's definitely a possibility because we see God doing that elsewhere, right, with striking with blindness. I think um, whether they would have been able to perceive the difference or not is hard to say, but I think one of the purposes of the plague is to attack raw the sun god. So, in other words, uh, you know, I think there may have been something God did to block out the sun. Yeah, and that could have been, God control the light, you can make light shine wherever he wants. And sure. Take light out, but the engineer in you, yeah, you're sitting there like, well, how is this going to work? Right? <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. I mean, because that's a viable question. We're trying to place ourselves there, understand what's going on. Yeah. If you start out with the assumption or the premise that this is a supernatural act, mm-hmm. then you don't really need any explanations at all for any of this. Sure. Because God did it and that's how it happened. And especially if we're, and we're reading it in, you know, between the lines a little bit, but if that's the case, as some scholars conjecture that there was no, like even their artificial forms of light weren't working, right? Then it's like, yeah, like, man, why couldn't they light a match? Not that they had matches, but you know, why, why didn't they strike their flint or whatever? You know, why didn't they get the light going? The cooking fires, why did everything go out? Well, again, it's a sup- there's a supernatural uh, element at work. Absolutely. You got a thought? Then we'll come up. Yeah. So, so on that, this is, and again, we don't know. Some scholars conjecture, uh, since you brought it up, let me dabble in that for a second, then I'll come right back to you, Dana. But it says in, uh, oh, which verse is it? Verse 22, it describes this thick darkness. It calls it a thick darkness. And then uh, in verse 21, it calls it a darkness that might be felt. So the, some conjecture, and again, it's, we don't, we can't, it would be reading between the lines, but some conjecture that it was a sandstorm, like a really intense sandstorm. Some have conjectured that. That, In other words, what does it mean that it can be felt, right? Is it literally like sand in the air? You know, could be. Uh, is it something, you know, is, is it just a, a deep darkness that is like felt in the sense of cold, right? Or... No, that's an interesting thought. Like a thick, thick fog. Can't even hear. It dampens noise, right? It chills you to the bone, if you will. No, that's good. That's an interesting thought. Something along those lines is what is probably getting out with the idea is it can be felt, yeah, right? God putting his hand over the top of all the Egyptians and just covering all any, the light can't get in anywhere. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting image. He's just like, boop, <laughs> covering them up. You got a thought? Then we'll go back. Mm-hmm. And why couldn't God allow evil just to, just to encompass them 
picture. So in the sense of more uh, a spiritual component, like an ominous darkness, a spiritual aspect to the darkness. Mm-hmm. I, I knew exactly where my parents were, my sisters, but when that light went out, I didn't even want to move my hand. I was so paralyzed by the darkness. Yep. Right. But you're right. And I, I had a very similar experience. We were in one of the caves systems, but they always do that. And they take you down. They say, all right, we're about to hit the lights. Right. But, and they, they and then they do. And it's absolute dark. Like you can't see, you know, your hand in front of your face. And when you consider absolute darkness where you would have to, you know, and that's the other way some people take this, you know, the, the darkness that can be felt. They think some will translate that as a darkness that requires feeling around. In other words, they're, they're groping because they, they can't see anything. So they're doing everything by feeling. Now, whether you translate that, that phrase that way or not, Undoubtedly, they would have been groping around it just in the absolute isolation and darkness. But the idea of, of how lonely that is, how, how afraid we can feel in I- absolute isolation, and someone that might even be right next to you or in the room next door, but you can't get to them, right? And that's the idea is they're immobilized for three days straight. I think they right? yelling for friends and family. Where are you? Right, we are yelling out. Yeah, but again, it's like, yeah, what's a Marco? Yeah, oh no, right. <laughs> Yeah. No, that is an interesting thought. Dark matter. So it's dark, but it can be felt. It's an actual presence that's there. That's an interesting thought. Yes. That's interesting. Phantom black. You call you call that phantom black? Vanta black. Okay. Huh. Boy, that is interesting. Everyone's got to go check out Google later, right? <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, that's right. When you're so scared, you can't even scream. <laughs> it's true. It's true. You're out of breath. You're that. You're that scared. No, that's exactly right. But that's, I mean, that's kind of the, as we think through what they would have experienced, but not just what they would have been experiencing, but what they would have been thinking, right? Again, place yourself in the Egyptian, you know, culture, time and place, where, you know, these, the gods, the greatest gods that you worship and adore are the gods of, you know, for instance, the god of the sun, Ra, is, is, is and most ancient 
pantheons had the god, the sun god as the chief deity or one of the chief deities. Uh, it was just revered, right? But the idea of having now all this, this almost a spiritual component to the darkness, that it's like, you know, this, there's an evil that we can't control here. It's taken us over. Our God to whom we pray to bring light and joy to, uh, you know, our, our life to bring crops to, you know, et cetera, is defeated. He, he's being humiliated. Exactly. Their faith in him is being diminished. I, I can almost see him calling out to the God uh, verbally and audibly uh, in this experience because that's what people do. They call out whatever their God is. They call out to him in, in a terrifying experience. That's good. That's a good point. Everyone catch that? It's just the idea is, I mean, what would you do sitting there for three days in absolute darkness? Undoubtedly, they're praying. They're praying to their gods and realizing their gods aren't answering, right? Their gods are, are being defeated. They're being overcome. Yeah, I'm going to Bob. Yeah, you just look at somebody as a flag of the church. You're trying to dismantle something. You know, you might come out of a multiple, kind of like a divide and conquer, you know. And yep. Even if you're just talking about Sparrow's psyche, he's, he's been hit in so many respects. You know, and it talks about the thickness of the darkness, the thickness of the fogs. And then it seems like the, the darkness is kind of symbolic darkness is kind of associated with blindness but it's also symbolic of his blindness to see because of the cards hidden cards absolutely absolutely it's it's personifying if you will or bringing yeah. you know out what's on the inside yeah. of pharaoh mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting you got a thought was yeah you got a hand that was a hand up wasn't it yeah, okay i was just thinking that he gave them this plague right before the firstborn death which is That's an excellent thought. <clears throat> in other words, and, and notice this, the same plague of darkness is reduplicated in the book of Revelation, you know, as an end time judgment. And in a sense, it's a profound foretaste, foreshadowing, if you will, literally shadowing, <laughs> of what they're going to experience, you know, unbelievers, those who are going to be cast in outer darkness. In other words, this is going to be the eternal torment, right, of, of those who reject God. And that's just like, wow, that's an insight. Eric, and then we'll come over here. I wonder if he said that you couldn't even have fires, that there was no light at all. That's what it seems, because it describes how, in verse 23, no one rises from their place for three days. So, like, even, which makes you wonder, did they eat? Did they drink? Yeah, they're immobilized. And I think, and again, I mean, even a three-day period, you can survive three days, you know, without food and water. I mean, not much longer without water. But but the point is, you know, it's kind of a, I, yeah, I think they were entirely immobilized. But then the contrast is, but there was light in Israel's dwellings, which means there was no light in their own dwellings. In other words, that's where, and again, we're reading into it a little bit, but that's where scholars get the idea that even artificial forms of light weren't working, is because they, they had no light whatsoever in their dwellings, absolute darkness. Yeah. Just a couple of Jews and comments, you know, if nobody moves from their place for three days, I mean, that means nobody went to the outhouse, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> There's a thought. Yeah, right. <laughs> sure. The, the, the darkness, maybe that prepared them for being underwater when the, the, sea, the Red Sea closed in on them. That's right. <laughs> it was a little dark under there, too. It was a little dark under there. That's right. They're going to experience it. 
Yeah. <laughs> you refrained yourself. No. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they maybe scooted over. <laughs> no. But, I mean, again, try to place yourself there and understand what they would have been going through, what they would have been experiencing, and what they been, would have been thinking, what they would have been praying, you know, and just realizing that nothing they do is working. Think about the children, too. I mean, adults can deal with things like that. But think about the children that would just be totally terrified. Yeah, how do you comfort your children when there's no light for three days? Right. Right, can't even find your children. Yeah, I mean, think about if you're the Egyptian dude that's out in the field, right? <laughs> right, when the darkness hits and it's like, oh man, like he's not even getting home, right? And then maybe you have a family in, in the home, but, you know, it's like, they, uh, yeah, how, how are they going to interact? How are they going to find each other? What if the families were separated before the darkness hits, right? Now, and again, that's kind of the whole point is it's a foretaste, as Tim pointed out, of, of outer darkness, total isolation, confusion, coldness. What's that? No, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think they, they went hungry for three days. Right. Exactly. I mean, the dude out in the field maybe had a little wheat that was left over. It didn't, no, never mind. The locust. No, the locust got it. Last plague. Never mind. <laughs> They're just in trouble. Right. <laughs> but that's the whole point is, and, and don't forget, I mean, we mentioned this a moment ago, but the idea of uh, you know this being a, a primarily attack against Ra, but don't forget that Pharaoh is considered Ra incarnate on Earth, right? So in other words, again, the climactic nature of the plagues—it's not only attacking uh, you know Ra, the one of the preeminent gods of their pantheon, but also Pharaoh. Now that's going to come out all the more in the tenth plague when we're going to see the firstborn targeted as well. But nonetheless we're seeing a pretty clear climactic uh, spike here, if you will. There was a crocodile god. Yeah, right. Well, well, yeah, you couldn't see him, didn't see it coming. <laughs> they could feel it. Yeah, true story. We're doing them in the light, and exactly. That's right. That's right. And now, now think about that for a second. The the experience they would have gone through, and then notice how the Bible, and not just Hebrew biblical culture, but most cultures would would what kind of symbolism they would associate with light and darkness, and why this plague is so significant in that regard. First, just think of it in terms of Hebrew culture. You know, that darkness is, is often used throughout the Scripture as a symbol for ignorance, uh, silence from God. A darkness can be used by God for judgment, according to Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Zephaniah, the Revelation, which we just referenced a minute ago. Uh, yet God is a God who rescues His people from darkness. Right? This is a huge biblical theme, a lot of biblical imagery wrapped up in this light versus darkness uh, sort of picture. Light is considered man's ally. It's, it's a synonym for life in the book of Job, several places. God is considered the author of light. He is clothed with light, according to Psalm 104, verse 2. Uh, God's ways, then, become associated with light. 
that if we walk in the ways of God, we're walking in the light as he is in the light. Uh, you know, Isaiah used that similar phrase. Isaiah 2.5 says, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And he's referencing the, uh, the commandments of God. Psalm 119, 105, right? His, his ways is a, a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. And it gives us guidance. It gives us insight. And so again, the, the idea of this imagery is, is we see throughout the scripture is really developed uh, much more in the New Testament, that God is considered the God of light versus the prince of darkness, right? Satan is called the prince of darkness uh, in Ephesians chapter 6. We see God is not only the God of light, but he also rules over a kingdom of light. And this is, to me, this is immensely profound as we, just to contrast what Tim brought out earlier, is you contrast the outer darkness that is the destiny of all who reject God, and yet you contrast that with the destiny of believers. We are granted access into a kingdom of light, the light that never goes away, right? There's no night there in, in Revelation 21, 22. And so the idea is we have this kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. These don't mix, according to Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Those who are destined for the kingdom of light are called children of light versus children of darkness, Ephesians 5, verses 8 and 11. And if we live according to God's ways, then we do works of light versus the deeds of darkness. Uh, Jesus will reference that, John chapter 3. Paul will reference that, Romans uh, chapter 13. And so again, we, we have these ideas of darkened understanding versus the light that brings understanding. We talked about that last couple of weeks in Ephesians, Ephesians 1.18, the idea of uh, illumination or the enlightenment of the eyes. That means to flip on the light, right? To, to shine the light, to shed light upon something so we can clearly see it, understand it, grasp it, etc. But darkness is then used for a picture of, of ignorance or confusion. I think you, somebody used the word confusion earlier. That's, that's a, you know, one of those uh, ideas associated with darkness. And yet we, uh, in the New Testament, were described as the, the saints. One of the missions of the saints is to shine as lights amidst a dark world. Uh, according to several passages, Jesus tells us to, to do that, right? To be in the salt and light, right? Uh, we have several places. Paul will describe that same thing, Philippians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1. And this, the, this imagery is, is immensely profound, but again, these ancient audiences are not going to be ignorant of that. They, their culture, Egyptian culture, shared very similar imagery, and they battled the darkness. Many of their gods to whom they prayed and were devoted to were to bring light, to bring the sun, you know, etc., in order to battle the darkness, to battle you know, all, of, all that the, the darkness entails. And so for God to show up and do this, to turn off the lights, was not only an utter humiliation of Ra, but it was an isolation of the people. It, it was, you know, that feeling of, of terror and being totally alone. And, and it's a foretaste of, again, what's ultimately coming. So you can imagine after three days, right, three days, and maybe it's the fact that, as, as Erica pointed out, they're not eating, are they even eating and drinking water, right? I mean, in other words, after three days... That's when Pharaoh reaches out, all right? That's the verse 24. It says, so Pharaoh calls into Moses, all right? And again, I, I'd hate to be the dude that has to go fetch Moses, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't know. That'd be a little rough. But he says, but Pharaoh calls Moses and he says, go serve the Lord. In other words, it, he, he can last for three days. But after this, it's like, hey, if, if we got to 
We've got to remedy this situation. Like, we can't uh, live in this sort of thing. So what happens? Well, again, in this, this last section, as the chapter closes, we see Pharaoh is going to once again bargain with Moses and Aaron, which is, is, is not going to go anywhere. So it's going to lead to frustration, and Pharaoh is going to banish Moses and Aaron and uh, in a rather interesting kind of dramatic scene. But again, verse 24, Pharaoh calls to Moses and says, Go you, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. In other words, this is similar to what we've already seen, where Pharaoh is, is giving a sort of concession, but then he's, of course, uh, trying to manipulate the situation, trying to control the situation. So once again, he, he offers that they can go, and he won't hold their families hostage this time. He says, well, you can take your little ones, right? But he's going to hold their flocks hostage. He's going to retain, again, probably out of the desire not only to retain their, their wealth and resources, but also perhaps as incentive to make sure they come back. But again, Moses refuses to relent. Uh, and notice, and, I, and I've pointed this out several times, but remember one of the key words is, that we see throughout the, the Exodus narrative is that Hebrew word abad, and it's the, the one translated worship or serve. And so he says here, when you leave your flocks, but Moses' reply, verse 25, he says, no, you, we have to give sacrifices and burnt offerings to the Lord. We have to bring sacrifices to him. And he says, so our cattle have to go to us, go with us, because we don't know which one God wants us to sacrifice till we get out there. But he uses the term, serve the Lord, at the end of verse 26, for a synonym with sacrifice or worship. And this, and this will be consistent throughout the book. But again, don't forget, that's one of the major subplots to the book is, remember early on, the first uses of that word was Israel was forced to serve Egypt, to serve Pharaoh. And yet the whole point is that, no, we, you know, Moses speaking on behalf of Israel, we are called to serve Yahweh. And that's the whole idea is whom will you serve, right? That's one of the major subplots to the, to the, uh, the narrative. But again, when Moses refuses to relent and he says, nope, it's, it's all or nothing deal, right? We all got to go. Well, then Pharaoh erupts, right? It says in verse 27 that the Lord once again hardens Pharaoh's heart. So Pharaoh responds, verse 28, get you from me, take heed to yourself, see my face no more, for in that day that you see my face, you will die. So again, we see in anger, Pharaoh banishes Moses and Aaron from his presence and even issued a death threat. Uh, as, as he chases them off. Yet Pharaoh's anger is inappropriate and irrational in at least two ways. First, it, it violates the immunity that Moses should have enjoyed as a prophet of God, right? In other words, this was a serious breach of, of religious, cultural, court protocols and norms. And so, I mean, we can see Pharaoh's, you know, at it up to here, right? I mean, he's, he's just losing it. But again, it's mean-spirited and vindictive in that Pharaoh has been given chance after chance to allow Israel to leave, right? I mean, he, they're still here because Moses, uh, you know, has, or Moses has pled, but Pharaoh has refused to let them go. So again, Pharaoh's bringing this upon himself, but he's taken it out upon them. And so again, what's interesting is as he makes this threat in verse 28, uh, Mo Moses turns it on him in verse 29, and he basically says, well, you've, you know, and this is one way to translate that phrase. He says, you've said the very thing. In other words, yep, you're right. I will not see, keep seeing your face. 
In other words, Moses tells Pharaoh that Pharaoh himself had essentially predicted the future. He'd essentially uttered a prophecy. Now, what we will see is that even here, Pharaoh will, this won't be, uh, Pharaoh's threat won't be carried out. In other words, we'll see at the end of chapter uh, 12, middle of, almost at the end of chapter 12, when the 10th plague falls, then Pharaoh reneges this, and he does actually call Moses and Aaron. Or, as some think, it says he, he calls to them, but that might just mean that they don't come back to his presence, but that he, you know, uh, gives them a message. In other words, that's, that verb can also mean that. In other words, this may well be the, the final time he sees Pharaoh face to face, is that at, right in this scene. It kind of depends on how, and we'll talk about it a little more in chapter 12. But when you get there, you know, what does it mean when he says he calls them to him? <clears throat> or calls for them. It could simply mean that he's you know, sending them a message. But what's this threat, he says, well, you will not see my face anymore. And Moses simply, he, again, do you remember this dynamic? I told you to watch for it. There's this interplay between Moses and Pharaoh and how they interrelate and this relationship as it's you know, obviously building in tension. Uh, but nonetheless, Moses is becoming more and more dominant in how he's asserting himself, and Pharaoh has lost so much face, right? He's lost so much credibility that, you know, Pharaoh, it, it seems like he's just grasping at straws, right? As he is trying to insist in, in his own way, control the situation, whatever. But you remember last time, Moses makes an announcement, and then he turns his back on Pharaoh and marches out. Like, whoa, should have never done that. But Pharaoh, you know, is, and of course, Pharaoh's upset at that. But we see in this interaction between Moses and Pharaoh, Moses is becoming all the more dominant. And here we're going to see the same thing. Now, again, I, we have to shut it down here for tonight, but next time we're going to see in chapter 11 that really the conversation's not over. This is one of those places that's kind of an unfortunate chapter division, right? Chapter divisions are not inspired. They came later, right? But nonetheless, this is one of those that it makes sense, you know, I mean, at first read that why they broke the chapter there because uh, chapter 11, verse 1 says, And the Lord says unto Moses, I'm going to bring one more plague. In other words, there seems to be a, a, a thought break there. There's a new unit. But if you keep reading, it actually tells us later in this chapter that then Moses departs from the presence of Pharaoh. So in other words, the announcement that he is going to make, we'll come back and talk about it next week, but the announcement that he's making uh, about the coming 10th and final plague is still in the middle of this final conversation, is what I want you to see, all right? Is that this may well be the final time that they see each other face to face. And as, as Pharaoh utters that in anger, Moses turns and says, well, actually, you're right. Like, you know, you, you're, you, we won't see each other again, but we will be released, right? And so this, of course, is we're, we're seeing this, this constant, you know, denigrating demoralizing of Pharaoh, the exaltation and assertion of Moses becoming more and more dominant. And we're seeing, and the whole point of that is that Moses's God is more powerful, right? He has confidence that Yahweh can keep him safe. He has confidence that Yahweh's word will not be broken. But Pharaoh, on the other hand, right, is losing all that confidence and he's losing the support of his own people. So, so, we'll, again, I'm out of time, 7.30, but next time we'll come back and we'll look at the 10th plague being announced. That's the, it's only 10 verses, small chapter, but that's the entirety of chapter 11, all right? And then it's going to take us a while to chew through 
chapters 12, 13, you know, as we look at the, the Passover itself, a uh, really rich section of the scripture, a lot to talk about there. So questions, comments, as we shut her down? Good involvement tonight, as always. You never lack for good involvement. My yeah. comment was uh, illustration of this whole thing. It's just an extra illustration. From time to time, the power will go out in the house. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm fumbling around and trying to find a flashlight, and you know, I find a flashlight, and maybe I light a candle, you know, whatever it is. But uh, that's the kind of, if you weren't able to light the candle or turn on the <coughs> flashlight, even though you knew where you were in the home, you're you're really it starts to the amount of time that passes it starts to affect the people. In That's right. Yeah, because I mean, it's imagine. All that yeah, it goes out, and you're like, huh? You know, you're at first you're going to be optimistic. Ah, this won't last that long, right? It's like a power outage, <laughs> right? Ah, this won't be long. No problem. Little inconvenience, right? Not a big deal. But then it keeps going, and it keeps going, and it keeps going. Before long, you haven't eaten, right? You're like, oh, boy. Right? And that's the whole idea is the hopelessness that's dawning upon them. You got a thought? Yeah, I was just kind of thinking about that. The, the exchange when you said, we have spoken well. It's kind of like a teacher talking to a subordinate or, or something where, you know, oh, are you basically saying you haven't been right at all, but you're, you're actually telling me right about one thing. Yeah, yeah, even a broken clock's right yeah. twice a day. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. So it's almost like as, as, as Pharaoh and Kenya, as we talked about last time, coming unraveled, his composure is gone, his you know, false sense of conviction is gone. That's right. And then you've got Moses like equally being his attitude is increasing and in, in his assurance. And it's just kind of an interesting it's, and I, I and I again I've I've drawn our attention to it a couple three times, you know, as we work our way through the narrative, but it's so fascinating because don't forget where Moses started. Right, he was scared to death to, to go to Pharaoh. Right, he didn't want to go back to Egypt. You know, yeah, but and he was he had all these reasons and excuses why he couldn't go and do the job. And yet, look at him now, right? But that's after nine plagues of watching God keep His word every single time. Exactly. Exactly. I like that. He was afraid he couldn't talk before Pharaoh. Now he's he's telling Pharaoh how to talk. Right. Yeah. <laughs> He's clearly becoming more assertive, more competent. Don't yeah. you think this would make a great movie? Yeah, right? Someone should make a movie out of this, right? <laughs> Amen to that, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a radio program. Now we're talking. Amen. All right, so next time, come on back. We'll, do, we'll try and tackle chapter 11 and uh, the announcement of the 10th plague, all right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time tonight. Thank you, Lord, for this record of your power and your preeminence over Ra and Ra's incarnate form and and Pharaoh. And Lord, just uh, this incredible plague that would have been horrific and terrifying to experience, to be isolated in that sort of of darkness that could be felt, uh, isolated for three days. And Lord, all the, the prayers that would have been uttered, all the uh, anxieties that would have been uh, just foaming, uh, Lord, throughout their hearts and, and just the struggle that that is. As we visualize that, as Tim pointed out, Lord, it's, it's simply a small taste of what eternal damnation would be. 
And Lord, as we contemplate that and we think about what it is to have life apart from Christ, uh, to have uh, this concept of condemnation, Lord, hanging over the unbeliever. Lord, what a horrific experience. And yet, Lord, we look at the flip side of that, that there was light in Israel's dwellings, that with Yahweh as their God, Christ, as he will later say in the New Testament, being the light of the world, that illumines and enlightens our hearts and our minds and destines us for that kingdom of of light which will have no night. Lord, as we contemplate those blessed realities, may we recognize, Lord, just the warmth, uh, how you invite us into your presence, the God of light. And yet uh, it's only our own wicked, rebellious stubbornness that drives us from you. Lord, we, we ask that you would help us to learn to walk in the light as you are in the light. Lord, to recognize the, the harm and confusion of darkness. Lord, to, to flee from it, to shine as lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, as Paul puts it. That, Lord, you would make us uh, little embassies, if you will, of, of light here on earth in the midst of a dark world. Lord, we, we just thank you for these wonderful ideas and thoughts and lessons, but we pray that they would not be lost upon us, but that, Lord, we would live in light of it, that we would go here, uh, from here, go our separate ways and go home and contemplate the good God that you are, and, Lord, that we would all the more be resolved to place our trust in you, to be loyal to you. So we ask your blessing, Lord, as we go our separate ways, may we reunite Uh, for fellowship and time together this coming Sunday and Wednesday and uh, the other opportunities that we have. Lord, we just continue to thank you for all of it, and we thank you in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.